So, well, you know, welcome to the team, Marco. I mean, you know, you know, obviously, you know, the this is the Digital Boys Tower. I mean, there's not a lot you really need to know. I mean, any got any questions? Well, yeah. How does this thing work? Are we recording now? Uh, yeah. Well, oh. we're actually always recording. I mean, that's just just the way we work. In fact, that was the implant that you had earlier. Um, I don't so if you remember. feel a slight buzzing in the back of your head, that's actually the summoning mechanism. Oh, good. I thought that was signs of some kind of ongoing neurological issue. Well, that uh, as well. But, you know, anything else? Uh, no, you know. Uh, is there any button? It's a very sophisticated No, no, no touch the buttons. Don't oh, touch no, the buttons. Don't 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 t- oh, God, don't touch that look, one. You don't put a big red blinking well, no, light on, in front can, of me. You can touch that Why one. Why do we have a big red blinking light? <laughs> well, are you crocodile proof? No, yes. Okay, well, then you can touch that button, but only in that circumstance. <laughs> All right. All okay. Right. Uh, I'll leave the button alone. No, I mean, generally, it's like, you know, just keep your fingers out of the way, you know, don't pet Brian when he's not expecting it, you know, really keep keep Chris away from food after midnight, and uh, you know what? There's only one thing you really need. What's that? Beer. I can go over a beer. Welcome to Digital Noise. Hello. I'm, I'm Richard, and we've got a new member of the team. Hi, everybody. This is... Marco Noyola. Hey! It's Marco, who is the latest member of the Thrill Kill cult. Uh, <laughs> be gentle with him, dear listeners. It's all very new to me. Oh, it's uh, all right. <laughs> I've never actually seen a microphone or a TV before. Or so. a film. Or film. So this is all new. Or people. Or people. <laughs> they, they keep me in the dark, hidden away from others. That's what we do with Brian the rest of the time as well. And yeah. Sharp objects. No, we miss you. No, no. We miss you, Brian. <laughs> we do. Uh, anyway, welcome to Digital Noise, yet another part of the ever-growing, expanding cosmos that is the One of Us Network. Um, don't forget, you can always become a subscriber to uh, One of Us uh, There are multiple levels of subscription. Some of them are dirt cheap. Some of them are a little bit more expensive. They give you access to the forums, to all kinds of extras and. and uh, commentaries and nonsense and obviously the weekly um, uh, breakfast pub which is our, our kind of nerd news update which comes up every single week um, uh, and very important this is a film review program for all the releases that are coming out on DVD and Blu-ray now if you look down beneath the uh, the player which you're currently listening to yes look down scroll down scroll that there you go you'll see pictures of all the titles we're reviewing this this week if you click on those, they will take you to the Amazon page where you can buy that very same title. That's simple enough. Why would you want to do that? Here's the reason. Because when you do that, we actually get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon. That helps pay the costs so that we can keep doing this show and all the other shows that we do on a weekly basis, bring them to you for free. Uh, and it, it doesn't even matter if you buy that title. As long as you buy something after you've clicked through from the website... That will just, you know, anything you do, anything you buy, we'll get a little bit of that. Uh, and like I said, this really helps us. Recently, somebody actually came to the site and then went to Amazon and bought a fridge. Wow. And we actually got some <laughs> Amazon basically went, here's 10 quid. Because... So you guys have been doing this wrong all along. Don't tell them to buy a video. So while you're there, buy a fridge. Buy, buy a, a home car. appliance. Yeah. <laughs> buy, buy, buy ten uh, Blu-ray players. Buy one for each item. Blu-ray. 
But, you know, that's, you know, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for helping us in any way that you can. Like I said, every little bit you do really helps the site. Uh, but you know what? They haven't come here to listen to us talking about, you know, how to keep us in business, although we do appreciate that. They've come here to listen to the reviews. And we do have some reviews for you. We have a good stack this week, and we are going to start off with Wolf Warriors. Oh, is that the one we're starting We are, are going to kick off with oh Wolf my. Warriors, a.k.a. Okay. Join the Chinese Army. <laughs> wow. Uh, just so you know, at some point, uh, we broke these down into uh, five apiece, and we had a handover. And the first time I met you was when you handed me this stack. And the very first thing I remember you telling me was about Wolf Warrior. And you described it as a piece of propaganda uh, for the People's Liberation Army. And boy, is it. Oh, hells yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I only had one thought watching this movie. And it's, it's a fun movie, but know what you're getting into. If I were a young person in China today and this kind of movie motivated me to join the armed forces, I would be so disappointed when I finally get into the control room and realize they don't have those cool 3D topographical holographic maps. I'm like, which army in the world has that? Because apparently they've got them in China. Uh, allegedly, it's, That's so. some Star Wars tech they've got out there. This is a... Uh I mean, this is a 2015 Chinese uh, movie, original, originally shot in 3D, not released in 3D uh, in, in America, just on your, your standard home edition Blu-ray, which looks, it's a nice transfer. Yeah. The basic plot is that uh, uh, <coughs> uh, Wu Jing, uh, as Sergeant Ling Feng, who is a marksman with the, with the army, who uh, is a little bit too good and a little bit too cocky, um, and... Uh, Pulls some crazy shit during some uh, raid on a drug lord. <laughs> oh God! In yeah. one of the most bonkers sequences you, uh, uh, you'll see outside of a. Uh, I mean, it really is like the opening sequence is like a combination between a Bourne movie and oh. one of those uh, join the seals adverts that you right. see when you're you know waiting for the next fight to come up on UFC Fight Night. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's that classic. This guy doesn't take orders. He's he's a uh, he's a rebel. He's a hot shot. He's a loose cannon. Should we fire him? Should we court martial him? No. Let's bring him into this elite force within the Chinese army called the Wolf Squad. Yes. And of course, he you know, of course he's going to be walking in there and be uh, greeted with open arms and just get along swimmingly with everybody with no conflict whatsoever. Uh, Which actually is kind of what happens. Well, yeah, but the it's introduction, like... the the initiation. Oh my god! <laughs> and you know that they had to have cooperation from the army because, my goodness, they brought out every single toy. The only thing this movie failed to do was somehow find a location that had a large enough body of water because I'm sure they would have loved to have shown off their aircraft carrier. They just couldn't pull it off. But if they had a chopper, a tank, anything. They threw it into this movie, even when it had no reason to be there. We're going to drive up these tanks just to show you we have them. They're not really important to the plot. But that's how the guy's greeted, with a literally an army invading it. Uh, and then he just pops up and goggles. goes, you're one of us now. And, yeah. this, and this, if you're expecting kind of a, a Top Gun-esque, you're too <laughs> dangerous for this. What they actually go is... You're exactly dangerous enough for this, and right. there's a lot of run there's a lot of singing happy songs. Yeah, you know. It, uh, oh, fortunately, wow. 
there is actually some tension because the brother of the uh, the drug lord that he shot in possibly the most ridiculous oh, sniper God. incident you will ever see um, decides that he's going to hire Scott Adkins, who apparently is reduced to this, which is a real tragedy, or he's getting paid a shitload of money to, to do this. I, I think there's some money involved. I think there's probably a lot of money. Um, let's get every Western martial artist we can afford. Oh, and by the way, you know the bad guys who... Because they're Western. Yes, that's the that's the mentality of this film, and it's definitely pro-China. The Chinese are great at everything and wonderful, and they are the a force to be feared. Yes, uh, but yeah, you do have this ridiculous story featuring a drug lord who you know is the bad guy because when his house gets raided and the doors blow down, he doesn't blink. When he's escorted outside, he doesn't shrug, doesn't raise an eyebrow. He just waits until his army of, you know, Western mercenaries come and take out the entire Chinese police force and doesn't flinch while people are being blown up apart from it. It it is that kind of movie where you have a character like that. Uh, And what's really amazing is that, as you pointed out, the Chinese army can afford these incredible... 3D interactive control yeah. maps, but they can't afford good CG for uh, some of their special oh, effects. No. There's, there's a couple of shocking moments that the, probably probably look better in 3D because you go uh, like, "Oh, I'm so shocked by the 3D," but here it really is. Oh wow, that that arm really came off badly, didn't it? That really did not look good. I, I was kind of going along with most of it. I mean, this is better than what you might expect. It, it's not horrible. But at some point, they either ran out of time or budget, uh, because the wolves, the wolves, there is, okay, you have these guys, wolf squad, they are literally attacked by a pack of wolves, and there is absolutely no sense of irony in this. They talk about, oh, a wolf squad is indefeatable. And, oh, we just got our asses handed to us by a bunch of wolves. Yeah. Isn't that ironic? No. It's, it's just there because wolf fight. Yeah. You know. I mean, that, yeah, I mean fair enough. Yeah. I mean, you know. Who do, but who, that's who where the CG really shows. Oh, that's when it was just like, you know what? Shocking. You ran out of money here. Something shocking. happened. Because up to that, it was okay. That, that was North Korean level uh, it, bad CG. That it was, was, it was bad. There, there's some kid on the internet right now who's probably posted a better a digital wolf. But <laughs> it, it, it's really a ridiculous movie. It's a fun movie. It's yeah. not a horrible movie. But yeah, once you realize that this is just a propaganda piece, it, it's it's forgettable. Yeah. I imagine for a Chinese audience, they're going to eat this up. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I don't know enough about China to detect any kind of nuances in this. I but, don't think there is any. You know, I don't know if there's something I'm missing or there's some kind of lens through which I could see this that would make it better than it is. But the one thing I found most telling is there's a kind of paranoia and an insecurity that runs throughout this film. It's like the Chinese... I don't want to say the Chinese. It's a huge country. But the filmmakers, they depict a China that's so... They so need to tell everybody how great they are. Yeah. They go out of their way. It's almost like they're compensating... And at one point, this is not a... I I don't know if this is a huge spoiler. At one point, we realize that one of these subplots involves a stolen case of blood vials obtained from Chinese test subjects. And it turns out they have been stolen so that they can weaponize a biological weapon 
that only affects Chinese. And people say this with a straight face. Yeah. They, they develop, they'll develop a weapon that will only kill Chinese. That's some major paranoia. Well, on also, a nationwide level. Also, the A, you know, China is so large that, like, which Chinese? Exactly. Um, I don't know that they're that genetically pure that you could... I don't even think that's humanly possible. It's really not. <laughs> no, it's I think it would pretty, kill anybody. It's pretty much not. I mean, like, I think that's... It, it's one of these moments where you're like, huh, you really... And, and that, that's one of those plot points where they clearly go... Okay, you know, the fact this guy's a drug lord is not enough of a threat. Right. And they didn't write the... Like, somebody, I think, walked on the set, yeah. like, two months well, into shooting and went, can't we have him be, uh... Ooh, let's say that he's trying to start a bioweapon... No, He's no, not enough stupid. of a national threat. You know, we, he needs to be a biological drug lord. <laughs> this really uh, feels like a film where... You know, it was kind of a that uh, thing, and but rather than studio interference, you have, uh, you know, the military, uh, <laughs> the military department of Beijing coming by and saying, "I've got a few notes on the script." Mm-hmm. Uh, a film which did not have any notes on the script from the military because uh, apparently they weren't, they, they were very definitely not interested in uh, working with the director, um, Andrew Nichol. Uh, oh, yeah. His his latest, uh, Good Kill from 2014, um, which is about uh, drone pilots. It's part of that surprisingly small um, genre of of Afghanistan films. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, yeah, I call it the post 9/11 yeah, genre. I mean, there, there is some. Yeah. There's some, but it's a, a surprisingly small one, and I think it's uh, very telling of America's relationship. Americans don't want to watch that. No, they don't at the moment. Uh, yeah, they don't want to be preached to or think they, about anything beyond just the, the jingoism inherent yeah. in the military. And this is not a jingoistic film no. at any level. Not this, at all. Uh, this features, stars Ethan Hawke, mm-hmm. uh, who actually appeared in Nichols' breakthrough film, his, his debut, okay. Gattaca, which, yeah. which is a film I love. I, you know, one of the, the best strange science fiction alleg- allegories and shameless about how much of an allegory it is. This is much more down the line. Uh, he plays uh, Major Thomas Egan, who is an Air Force fighter pilot who's been basically retired out of actually flying fighters because the U.S. military... It, and this is completely true. They really don't want to put pilots up there. Uh-huh. They want to get as far away from actually having pilots in the air as they can physically manage because pilots get shot down and then they become... And because you put so much into making sure that when a pilot gets shot down, they survive, that they then become political tools. So what's the sensible thing to do? You have them sat in the, in the, uh, the desert outside of Las Vegas uh, flying drones yeah. by remote control, which is... Actually, where they are. It's the he, Xbox generation goes to war. Yeah, they. Uh, but he is a guy who is, you know, he flew combat swords. He's, he's right. re, you know, he's used to flying in to actually being there. He's an amazing pilot, but now he's doing everything by remote control. But he's, in a way, he's actually, while he's less connected to the, the field of combat, in some ways he's more connected because they make, expect him to sit there it, on the, watching everything on a screen and then keep the camera on where he dropped the Hellfire missile and count bodies or count body parts. Right. So you have this guy who is you know, suddenly more exposed than ever to what it is that he is doing. And that is... And it's, there's a fascinating moral 
quandary presented here because this is the one of the first films about America's dependence on drone strikes, mm-hmm. about America trying to make war bloodless for itself. Right. Um, Keeping the old hands clean. And I, I, Nickel kind of carries it off I, and kind uh, of doesn't. It's... It suffers from having too many straw man characters. Mm. There's too many characters. Uh, first, we should just say that, that Ethan Hawke really does deliver a very good, very internal performance. You absolutely believe that this guy is having a nervous breakdown, but it's a basically any character who hides a bottle of vodka inside of his bathroom has some problems. Yes. You know, he's got problems communicating with his wife. He's got... who. You know, he's got... Played very ably by January Jones. By January Jones, who, again, I never quite believe as a military wife. That's a problem across the board in this film. There's a lot of people who are too Hollywood beautiful to really convince me that these are people who are in the military. If you've ever met people in the military, they're normal people. Yeah. These people look kind of stunning. When January Jones says, I joined a health club because, you know, I want to get in shape. I'm like, no, you're January Jones. you? (laughs) You do not need to get in shape, dear. Uh, You're not the typical person. But they all commit to the material, and they do a very good job, except for some of the supporting characters who I feel are really just there to throw out the the typical arguments. They're like, oh, you know, they're they're always going to hate us, no matter how much we blow them up, or this is why we're fighting. And you, it feels, everything feels telegraphed. Everything feels like it's been predetermined. And it takes away a lot of the tension from the film, which is, by the way, during the drone strike scenes, there is a great deal of tension. Yes. I mean, it is very eerie, uh, and they did a fantastic job uh, reproducing this on what had to have been a modest budget. But you see villages, you see uh, townspeople, you see people who may be Taliban, they may be just local citizens. We don't know, but we see them, and they get blown up, and it's a very chilling moment because there's nothing visceral about it. It's it just the room is always very quiet, and, and then that you get to like the the very term "good kill." Yeah, is just this idea of like we're not involved in this, we're not engaged with it. You know, we're at a distance, and that's one thing that is driving the Hawk character crazy because yeah. he said, "When I was in a plane, at least I felt." He doesn't say this in so many words, but he feels alive. Yeah. You know, there's at least an element of risk, there's an element of danger, and he enjoys the freedom of being in the air. Now he is literally cooped in a can with three or four other people and thousands of miles away from the action. He could not be further removed. And, the, and the, the other, the, there was another straw man character on, on, the, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, which is Zoe Kravitz yes. as... Um, the good liberal voice. Yeah, the good, the good liberal voice who, who is introduced as his co-pilot, and she's consistently going, but what, you know, are, yeah. you know are, why, do they, why are we doing this? Every why, time we do this, we create another terrorist. And I, I, I sat there thinking, why are you there? Yeah. Why did you join the army? I am join the Air Force. I am not convinced that you would have signed up. I, I don't get why she is in that context, and she provides a val- valid narrative role, and she's she's good in the part. But I, she is. The, the part is one where you go, I you know, she is not going to sit there in the middle of a, a drone strike operation and go, no, let's not yeah, do this. Not why day are we doing one. This? It's it's like not not what the, not realistic, and that was yeah. that was rather disappointing. The best 
written character and the best performance in this, even better than Hawke, who, you know, Hawke, I, I, Hawke can't do bad work at this point in his career. I think no. there's just, he just has this level of, of internal damage that he just translates silently mm. so well in just everything he does. But Bruce Greenwood, yeah. as the lieutenant colonel in charge of the unit. Yes, he who, is fantastic. He, you know, you look at initially and you think, well, this is kind of the, you know, this is the kind of part that you, are, that you would normally give to, you know, Ali Emery as... Um, or Sam, uh, 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 Sam, huge mustache. God damn. Oh, I know exactly who you mean. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Yes. Sa- yeah. The beef man. Beef Not Sam Boston. The other one. Uh, Sam Elliott. Sam, Sam Elliott. Elliot. Yes. I was like, I was just suddenly kind of like transfixed internally by the, by, that, <laughs> by the mustache. The, you know, you think it's going to be that kind of part, but instead it's, it's the most nuanced. Yes. Of all the characters. And you keep, and you look, and he's there going, we do this because we have to do this. We right. do this because we are told to do it. We do this because there's a certain level at which the missions that we know we're doing right, we're so spot on with. And there's a wonderful sequence where you're thinking, well, you know, why would any of them do this? And they get a call in from a unit on the ground going, we right. don't know how, you know, <laughs> we're... we're we just want to get some sleep. Yeah. That's all we want to do. We need some cover. It's not a kill mission. Not a kill mission. It's a we need mission. a drone circling around us with the IR camera on just looking after us. It's basically and that's all it is. And it's, it's the best moment that character feels because he feels like I did something good for somebody. I didn't have to kill anybody today. I did something to support the troops. And I'm going back to the Greenwood character because I, I agree. He, he is, I think, one of the best parts of this movie. Because he has, at the very beginning, <clears throat> he has the sort of thankless job of giving a speech to all these new recruits, and that speech seems to exist only to tell the audience, oh, this is what we do now. You know, and he's the first character who says, good kill, uh, you know, surgical strike, whatever you want to call it, make no mistake, we are killing people. He says, the military doesn't like to say Xbox, but what the hell, let's face it. That's how they de- that's what they developed the technology from. And at, throughout the film, he's not this barking, uh, you know, dictatorial type of commander in, in charge. He, he is very sympathetic. He is very obviously cares about the people who work under him, but obviously has orders he has to follow. But always rationalizing along the way, whenever there's any doubt as to why the good aspects of this outweigh the bad yeah and then the wraparound is when you see him at the end he's giving the same speech again verbatim yeah and you realize this guy has delivered this he has internalized this and justified this so where he can deliver this speech verbatim it's a nice little touch it's to that character it's it's fascinating because you know the the um the air force has always been regarded as yeah, they're not really on the ground anyway. Right. Yeah, uh, and, you and look they at, mentioned that, and they, and they, yeah, and that's nicely played into, it. and they're, and they're getting this is them getting further and further away. That the guy who was in, you know, who was in a a fighter, a couple, a, a, you know, fighter bomber a couple of miles up, even even he feels like he's now more distant than ever from no. what it is, and they're less engaged and they're less relevant. And it's really, it, it's kind of a, it's a combination of so many things that are very interestingly done. This idea of of being phased out by technology which is so undercurrent so much of an undercurrent in so many films about the American workplace and this is a workplace film it's yes. not a mili- it's not a, a 
a warfare film. In a lot of ways, it's a workplace film. But it's there's so many moments that you just go, okay, this scene was written to get through a discussion mm-hmm. or to make a point. And every single time, one of the you know, the, there's two. Uh, two pilots in particular yes. who are cl- just so paper thin right. and comedically badly written and I'm like you know the sad thing is that there's no excuse for them to be that weak no. when you have a character of the depth of Nickel uh, the depth of, 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 um, of that Nichols can write with, with Greenwood's character I mean you just really want to see that level all the way through and if, you, if you'd have got that all the way through this would have been an amazing right. film. It's the As supporting is, cast that fails more than uh, anything. It's the script that fails. The script the that fails them. Cast. Yes, there are no bad. There's no bad actors in. Yeah, this. this is this is this is one of those ones where you just like you you can feel the ball going around the rim of the hoop so many times yeah. and not going in. But when it get, when it when it does work, it works. Um, Peerlessly, I think Nickel still has those moments where I think he's a, a truly uh, phenomenal and insightful director. But there's just those moments where you're like, mm, this just needed it needed like two more passes of a script polish. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a very important topic. It's it's as topical as you can get. This is a real thing that's actually happening in the world. It's a discussion worth having. This film does not serve that discussion because. Frankly, as you stated, uh, there are characters who make arguments that are so poorly written that are really just there to make an obvious point that I don't think this is going to change anybody's opinion or open up anybody's mind. I think whatever you bring into this movie, you've already made your mind up. I think the audience who goes to see this movie is probably already probably already decided that there are some real ethical quandaries about drone warfare. Had they made it more of a rah-rah film, maybe you'd get somebody who'd go in there and go, oh, I you know, I, I thought this was going to be about how cool flying drones was, but it's really not that cool. They don't do that. And then the last 15 minutes, I would say the last 15 minutes of this film really, really disappointed me. And I can't spoil anything. I won't. You might like the ending. But I think there is a redemptive arc and a little bit of ambiguity at the end, it tries to get both of those things and fails both of those things. I, I do not believe for a minute the last 15 minutes of this they, film. They really are a leap into the fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's... It, you don't it walk makes, away from that yeah, without think, repercussions. I think it's it's a nice idea for a story, but I, but I think, again, it's one of those moments where you're like, no, you you set something in place to serve the purpose of the story rather than letting character drive the story and I think yeah. you know character always has to drive the story yeah. otherwise you're just putting people through hoops and when Hawk is driving the story it works really well yeah. oh absolutely it's just when they're trying to make points I mean if the 15 if we saw the last 15 minutes the the outcome of the last 15 minutes is probably a more interesting movie than what we have here but they just leave it that this happens and then the movie ends and, and again I, I wish I could talk more about it but I wouldn't deny anybody the right to see this movie unspoiled. It's certainly worth watching. It is an important topic. Whether this film serves it well, I, that's up to you. The, it does prove, though, that uh, there is absolutely no reason at this point in American military history to make Top Gun 2. <laughs> because this is what it would be. It would yeah. be like Tom Cruise sat outside of Las Vegas uh, yeah. going, 
Uh, okay, so I don't have to get to be in a plane anymore. And then he goes to the Bellagio and gets blown by hookers. Uh, yeah, that's you know, what the film would be. This is the anti-wolf warrior. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the Chinese have not reached this point in their military history yet to produce a film like this. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean, I mean it's very accurate in a lot of ways, but it's it, at the same time, yeah, I, I, it's not even a swing and a miss, but it's 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 definitely a home run. It's this is definitely like yeah. uh, see it for Hawk place. and Greenwood's work. Yeah. Uh, you know, January Jones and uh, Zoe, uh, 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 what is her last name? No, we won't uh, Zoe Kravitz. Re- yeah, just rewind. Rewind. Again, said. don't believe her at all in this role, but she does a good job yeah. with the material that she has. See this for the performances. See it for the topics it might bring up, but I, I don't think it's the definitive movie on this topic. Well, now we're going to move on to a film that... Sadly, I didn't actually get to see this week, Uh-oh. but you did, and that is uh, Bessie. Bessie. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Which I, is, the, which is uh, HBO's... Uh, it's an HBO film. Bessie Smith The Bessie biopic. Smith biopic. And I like this film. It, it, of all the films we had here, it was the longest one. Um, Never mind the quality, feel the width. You know, but I just was commenting earlier uh, to Richard that most of the films we're reviewing tonight... Uh, they're in the 90-minute range. You know, they're quick, in-and-out uh, kind of films, and that usually works to their advantage. A film like... And the reason I bring this up is because Bessie is an HBO pick. They obviously put a lot of money into it. It's obviously more expansive. It is a biopic of the uh, the important and influential blues singer Bessie Smith. Does a very good job of presenting her life, except it falls into a lot of the pitfalls that most biopics fall into, which is trying to cram so much into this. Even with its extended run length, it still feels very, very sparse. It feels like a lot of things are telescoped, characters are brought in, introduced, disappear, for no real reason other than... Basically, it's the kind of movie where, oh, this is Carl Van Vechten, and Oh, this is John Hammond. Hello, say hello to Benny Goodman. Now, if you are a student of jazz or blues, you might recognize some of those names. They are significant. Uh, However, they're not done much justice in here. This is, above all, a Queen Latifah vehicle. And and to a lesser extent, Monique. Uh, They do a fantastic job, both as Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey. Uh, Again... Two important influential blues singers at a time when blues was didn't exactly go mainstream, but suddenly entered the white uh, vernacular. It became blues. People started talking about it. Uh, I don't believe it was Bessie Smith. I think it was actually Mamie Smith who had like the first million-seller race record. Back then they were called race records. And obviously Bessie Smith is an important figure in that story, as is her mentor Ma Rainey. And, uh, again, indelible performances all across the board, but suffers a lot from that typical biopic thing of, here's this childhood trauma that we will kind of bring back every once in a while in a gauzy flashback just to remind you that it's important. But meanwhile, we are just going to keep barreling forward through an entire life. We're going to do an entire life in two and a half hours and just throw all kinds of characters at you. And hopefully you catch the importance of who these people are in the story, but don't get too attached to them because they're going to be gone in another scene or two. Um, Really, again, the main reason to see this is to watch Queen Latifah's performance 
and uh, Monique's performance because they are fantastic. It is a complex story about a woman who is, you know, not only introducing blues to a wider audience, comes from a very troubled background. It touches on on race in America. It touches on racism within the black community itself. It talks about lesbianism and a lot of taboo-pushing things. Uh, however, it is ultimately uh, it is ultimately Queen Latifah's show. That is the best reason to watch this. She does a fantastic job, as does the ever-great Michael Williams. Uh, most people will know him from The Wire. Uh, he's presented as Bessie Smith's husband, and he's fantastic in this for the time he's in it. He's in for most of the movie, but then drops out. Uh, and, and this actually left me wanting more. Uh, maybe there is. I was very grateful to see a uh, a movie that took this topic seriously, that treated it well, that gave it the kind of productions values it deserved. Uh, it's a project that's been in development for twenty something years. It uh, Queen Latifah has been attached to it for twenty years. Finally got to do it. Uh, in fact, if you watch the DVD behind the scenes stuff, you can actually see a, a short clip of a screen test she did, like in nineteen ninety six. Wow. Yeah, so she's, uh, she's, playing, the, she's playing Bessie I mean, Smith from like 20 years old to, you know, I mean, her 40s. There's, there's something admirable about that kind of passion project, but yeah. it sounds like it does, it hits that basic problem that so many of these films does. One, one that there's a childhood trauma that drives them to be an artist. Right. It's like, that is, everybody's done that now. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, you know, Get On Up, the James Brown biopic, did that to a certain degree, but then went, no, this was a guy that was going to be like this anyway. You know, and I think that had a lot fewer of the structural problems that a lot of this kind of films it, it tends to have because it it did have this patchwork of like throwback moments. Right. You have rather to have this moment. And they were just like, they were glimpses rather than saying, okay, here's an entire life because I, I honestly don't believe you could do an entire life in two hours. No, it it's can't just, be done. You, know, you, you have to pick the themes or the moments or some pivotal incident and it's like you want to go back and do a a mass you know go hey we did this but you know here's the source material we used go and read the six volume biopic i mean it'd be like you know somebody going we're gonna you know particularly bessie smith who's incredibly influential surrounded by incredibly influential people to say you're going to be able to do her life in two hours it'd be like taking you know robert caro's uh, L- um, LBJ, LBJ yeah. monolithic <laughs> collection, and say, "Oh, we're going to boil it down to to two That's hours." Brian Cranston no, for two you, hours. You can't. You're just LBJ. not going to do that. You you have to. I think. Yeah, I, and, and I'm not sure that there's any more purpose to this kind of uh, biopic because I think everybody sees the flaws of them, and I hope people are going to start looking at them and going, "Okay, we have to do something a little more." There's actually a really great uh, TV play the BBC did a few years ago. Uh, which was about uh, Brian Epstein and um, uh, John, John Lennon. Lennon. Was this there about their famous three-day lost weekend? Yeah, I, I recall that, hearing about. It. I never that's saw really it. good. And I'm kind of like, I, I wish people would do more things like that. Of course, that's purely his, speculative. And but taking an incident, you know, that you know that happened, and you're not trying to extrapolate out everything, you know, an entire life, because I think that's right. that's really just a kind of a hiding to nothing, which is uh, I mean, I'm fascinated to, I, I would be fascinated to see um, Bessie, because I, I think Bessie Smith is, is like you said, yeah. such a pivotal character. And, and, and the more you know about the genre, the more you know about her and, and some of the 
you know, like when somebody goes, oh, and there's Chew Berry on the bandstand. It's just thrown out there. It means nothing to 99% of the audience. But if you know those people, they're like, oh, there's a reason why, you know, John Hammond is important in this period of time. Controversial though he may be, but you would never know that by watching this movie. He's he's just a, a character who comes out of the blue. But really, this Sounds is a movie like this to watch. Should come with footnotes. Yeah, yeah, they should. I mean, in a perfect world, they would. Or like branching scenes, you know, it'd be like, would you like to know more about this? It's HBO. Like, you know, their their, their speciality is. It would have been is, better as a mini series. Yeah. I would have seen this more as like a two part mini series. Maybe there's somewhere a longer cut, but even at two and a half hours, it feels so rushed. I mean. Charles S. Dudden comes up. I'm like, oh, he's Paul Rainey. Okay, it's nice to see Charles S. Dudden. And then he's gone. He's got like one good scene early on. Disappears, never to be seen again. And to me, it's kind of criminal to have an actor as good as Charles S. Dudden give him a nice little scene, but then he disappears from the picture. And that happens throughout with Oliver Platt. I mean, sometimes actors who I don't know personally, obviously I don't know them personally, I don't recall (laughs) I was talking to Ollie the other day. Just the other day, and uh, I said, dude, you really needed some more screen time. But no, actors who I thought would do a really good job, I don't really know their names, but I liked them enough that I wanted to see more of them, and then they're gone. You know, after after about 40 minutes, you kind of figure out, okay, these are the key characters, these are the ones who will come back for more scenes, but a lot of times it's just a just a moving tableau of people. It, it is handsomely mounted. It's beautiful to look at. They obviously spent some money. Uh, the director and writer, it, it originated with a screenplay, actually, by uh, the Texas playwright, Horton Foote, who's <laughs> best known for Tender Mercies. And again, it was went through the Zanuck Production Company for like 20 years, including, at one point, screening, testing uh, Queen Latifah. Finally got made with a uh, director... Uh, Again, it's good to see a, a, a female director, a director of color, get to tell a story about another female of color who was also influential in her field. I applaud that. I think it's great that HBO did that. I just wish they had taken more time to tell this story in a more interesting way because your point is well taken. The structure is so familiar now to audiences. It would be nice to just find a way to break out of that. Talking about familiarity of structure... Uh, but a very different. Uh, oh, yeah. Segue. Oh, yes. That's, that's what I do. I do the smooth segue. You do that well. <laughs> I do a smoother segue than, than uh, Katy Perry at, uh, at Burning Man. <laughs> Pop culture reference, kids. Look it up. Lost After Dark. Now, I am, as anybody who listens to this show or reads my columns, that will know, I am a sucker for a good old fashioned 80s slasher pick. Dear God, this is what this wishes it was. Lost After Dark is... A bunch of people obviously went, you know, Hatchet did a really good job of kind of doing retro 80s slasher, trying to mix up the rules while being still incredibly loyal to them. The sense of familiarity, but, you know, just updated enough and done on contemporary film stock and, you know... It's become a genre unto itself. I mean, wow, and the, this is this is undoubtedly an addition to that genre. This is the this is another one of those films. This is the ironic hipster band playing bluegrass at a farmer's market version of an eighties <laughs> horror film. That doesn't mean it's horrible. They have some skills. There's some good moments in this, but with a film like this, that again, as you point out, is very formulaic. The only thing they can do is throw an occasional twist, which there was one or two, mainly. 
all right, let's be frank. This is the kind of movie, when you're watching it, you are already deciding who's going to die first. And usually, you can always pick out who that's going to be. This movie doesn't do that. I'll give them that. There's a couple of good moments of gore. There's, obviously, they got a nice look to it. Uh, and they get all the 80s details right. The only thing I really didn't care for about this film is, apart from the fact that it's inherently unoriginal, is they had this cheap gimmick of using like this faux film grain oh. and scratches. The thing is, it's not consistent. No, you know, it's there every once in a while to suggest. I mean, they even have the missing reel gag. We've oh, all which, seen which you know, sorry, which Grind- actually does pay off. Yeah, but in a way, it pays off in a way. But at the same time, it's like no, Grindhouse did that, and at this point, you're not even referencing missing reels. Right, you're mi- you're referencing the fact that Grindhouse referenced missing right. reels. You, nobody in the '80s ever went to a movie or drive-through and saw a movie with the words missing real yeah. anywhere in there. That didn't happen. They would just you would just cut maybe. You might be I, missing I a section. I would actually like somebody to do what the experience I've had at a couple of, of late night screenings uh, where clearly somebody projected was drunk, which is uh, reels in the wrong order. Ah I, yes. I don't think I've actually seen that. But this is this is absolutely Generic horror. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of kids, and they're supposed to be going to the uh, the school dance, but they don't. They steal the school bus, and it breaks down, and of they're course. in the middle of the countryside. And there's somebody out there killing them, and the kills are creative. Yes, they're so good. They're well staged. And the thing is that the characters are so stereotypical and generic that you're like, oh, have you seen eighties horror film? Yeah. Oh no, even by <laughs> those standards, like. The one token black friend, yeah. the slightly slutty alternative girl, the it, fat guy. It's a cross section of high school that would never hang out together. No, when I ever. go back now and look at some of those films, I'm like, those people would never hang out together. That's why you had to make a movie like The Breakfast Club. You had to d- devise some conceit to get all of these people who would never hang out together in a room. And this Horror way, movies don't do that. This is, you'd never happen. You'd never have them there. They're so different. It's like, you know, okay, they're here to be to be knocked off in an order. And like you said, the only thing that throws it for a loop is that it goes, no, no, the order's not there. And you kind of go, okay, now I know you're, after the first couple of kills, oh, you're going to change the order up. Yeah. Are you doing anything else? No, you've got nothing. You have a, a killer who, uh, you know, that just looks like... Somebody else ripping off the look that Rob Zombie did for um, uh, Michael Myers in uh, his Halloween 2, which mm. has now become an, a thing that people rip off. I, I've seen yeah. so many bad contemporary slasher movies where, it, oh, he's tall and he's got a scraggly beard. Yeah, and it's that's hillbilly. It. And, it's like, yeah. and it's not even like hillbilly just hillbilly. Villain. It's like... Uh, his name eight is foot, Jode. Eight, okay. Yeah, eight they foot call tall him Hilda. Jode. Yeah. In fact, just... all of the characters in this, if you're paying attention, if you actually listen to their names, because trust me, you usually won't care. But if you listen to their names, they're all references to 80s films. Yeah. You know, there's characters named Wes, Toby. You know where that comes from. It, it gets everything right, but it's... You know, frankly... This is just a cheeseburger of a movie. Most I mean, restaurants will serve a cheeseburger. You'll eat it. You'll be okay with it. You'll forget about it an hour later. If you want to watch this movie, enjoy it as the cheeseburger it is, but know that it's not a fine dining experience. You're not going to Instagram this meal. 
this is very forgettable. The 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 best thing about it is Robert Patrick. Yes, uh, who is who, having fun with who, it. Who who turns up as the the super strict yes. school principal? And, yo, he's the vice principal. That's vice the principal. one clever bit. He's not even the principal. Yeah. He is the vice principal. <laughs> that that is how desperate this man is to have some kind of validation and authority. I mean, Robert, Robert Patrick is always eminently watchable. Like, yeah. He's just one of these people you can put on screen. and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll watch him. But like, there's, he's doing like five things at the moment that are that are better than this this is this is uh, you know i so want to like films when they do this because i mean i'm a huge fan of the hatchet franchise i think you know they just did something rather wonderful there and occasionally you get this kind of intelligence in in these retro slashes but when they're dull they're dull and there's nothing more to them and this really is an exercise in well you know i'm going to get to the end of the the 80 something minutes and you're going to pull some trick at the end, and you do, and it's like the the line between pastiche and pale imitation isn't thin. And mm. films like this try to convince you that they are, but there's nothing here. And I, I kind of feel sorry for you because it's like this is competently made. It is. There's confident. nothing bad about it but there's no. nothing in fact let's be honest some it. of the acting is better than some of the acting in those original 80s oh, films than a, than a lot of those 80s they're like let's actually get some good actors and ask and ask them to play these dumb stereotypes that were popular back then you know I've got to say I mean, if you, you know considering you know, Scream Factory over the past few years has put out some really great material from that era that films that people have completely forgotten about, like The Final Terror, which is a great slasher nobody remembers. The Burning, uh, you know, or more recently things like you know some of the some additions to the Wrong Turn franchise, which actually have been pretty entertaining. That you're kind of stuck with something that wants to be more knowing than it is is just uh, either embrace the genre as a whole. Or do a pastiche. Don't try and do both, uh, unless your name is Adam Green. Uh, at which point you can get away with it because you have so much love for it, you can point out the problems. I, uh, I think uh, the, this this isn't there isn't enough. Here. I mean, Ty West also comes to mind. I'm not a big horror follower, but I do know that there are a lot of those uh, younger directors who grew up watching these movies, or very often sometimes watching them on video years after they came out theatrically, and were inspired by this. That's all well and good, but the retro '80s horror theme—it it is a genre unto itself now, it seems, and one I'm willing to see die a slow death. We don't need any more retro '80s horror film. We don't need any more retro anything. Make something fresh and new. Make what somebody's going to be copying 20 years from now. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, you can do it well, but you only have to do it well once, and after that, there's no point in anybody else doing it. <laughs> so talking talking of things that that uh, have been done in a different way, uh, Lawless Kingdom, oh, uh, 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 another Japanese, another Chinese film. Um, okay, the, I will explain in advance. Uh, here's my experience of watching this. Who's this person? Why do they know this person? Why are all these people hanging around together? What are they talking about? What are these references? Who's that? Wait, wait. Oh, God, this is a sequel, and I haven't seen the first one. Uh-huh. I had the <laughs> this exact is rather same experience. Um, 
This is the... So, I mean, there's not really a huge amount we can say about this, apart from the fact that I actually enjoyed this enough that I kind of want to go back and watch the first one. It, it, maybe it'll make a little more to, sense. To actually understand what the hell was going on. Uh, this is um, the sequel to uh, a film called The Four. It's the middle part of a trilogy adapting an extremely long wuxia uh, uh, book, uh, which is basically about these detectives with, you know, traditional martial arts superpowers right. trying to solve a crime that seems to relate to a, 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 a crime that should have been solved 12 years ago. But now everybody involved who was supposed to have died at the time is now turning up and dying now. And it's like, right. where are these people? Yeah. The problem is that... And I, 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 I feel very bad about not being able to say more about this film, but I'm going... I literally was going, okay, so who is the guy with half his face missing who's been uh, been planted, been, been, been uh, you know, planted the, into a tree? Yeah. Why is his father mad at everybody? There's a certain element I, I, that I was, like, baffled, but... Why is Chinese Gandalf angry at... Chinese three-eyed raven. You yes, know? it's like there's so many pastiches. We, you know, there's even the opening felt like if I watched like some Harry Potter movie that yeah. I put in the wrong disc, it, it feels like there, there's a Minds of Moria sequence. There's so much about this movie that just feels like a salad of ideas, words, and characters. Even though I'm enjoying it, it it's it's entertaining nonsense half the time. I had the exact same experience. I thought I was watching this very late at night. Maybe I was tired and I just didn't know how to watch a movie anymore because I was completely confused. About an hour in, it all clicked. And then afterwards, I did some research. And yes, indeed, this is the second part of a movie. Uh, Will you enjoy this movie? Probably. The third part is already out. Uh, is in it? China. It's not been released in... Uh... And the, I'm looking at the DVD box now because I was curious. It says nothing. Uh, this no, is released it's, like it's a, an original film, non-franchise, non-sequel, not tied to anything. There is no indication on this box. If you happen to be at the video store, Redbox, or wherever you might pick up a movie, if you see Lawless Kingdom, it will not tell you that it is the second part of something. Yeah. It is absolutely confusing. Uh, well, without this, any context. The thing is that this is actually part of a... a it, this this is the second time, at least, that this has been adapted. Is that the, right? Yeah, the, uh, this is a... The, the book is uh, it, the, called... And I have... So, apology to anybody who speaks Cantonese. Sida uh, Mingbu, uh, which literally translates as the four great constables. Right. Uh, it's a, you know, a major work of the genre... Uh, there was a 25-part uh, oh, te- television adaptation. This is the like. like so this said, is their Lord of the Rings. Yeah, basically. this really is. I mean, this is this is you know. I, and I, but I, I'm. I have to say, I'm kind of mad at uh, the distribution company for not telling people that this is part right. two because I, everybody's going to have the same experience. You're going to kind of walk away going. I, I what is what is this? Yeah, and this you know Gordon Chan is 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 a phenomenal director. I mean, this is a real. Sense of style to this. Oh this no, it's a gorgeous film to look at. Moment, no clue what was going on. Absolutely, but it, it was. It, I was fascinated enough by the characters and the characterization that I did go. I actually want to go and find the four so I can watch Lawless Kingdom and work out what it is I'm missing. You know, this must be the rarest of all film reviews where the, the, the reviewers are going, no clue, nah, no clue. I mean, I, completely I out of a figured depth. it out about halfway through, at least enough. 
the thing that confused me initially was there's so many characters. They're all being introduced. There's all these different factions. There's all we don't know their people's relation to one another. You know, it, it, it's and again, I saw this very late at night when I was very tired, and I thought there's something wrong with me. About an hour in, when these you have to understand, there this is a group of detectives called the four. The Divine Constabulary, I believe. Yes. They're basically like an elite section. They're the wolf squad of this thing called Department 6, which we're not told what Department 6 is, but apparently they're the guys who investigate crimes. And these four people with superpowers are like the, the best of the best. At some point, one of their members is accused of a crime, which he is strangely silent about. It's one of those infuriating things. Where it's like, you know, you could have avoided all this mess if you had just told us you didn't do it and why you didn't do it. And, and then there, I won't spoil it, but there is a huge plot hole because at some point he does say, I'm protecting somebody. And I just don't, uh, I'm protecting somebody. I'm just hoping that it's not who I think it is. Well, we find out who it is, and boy, you know what? I don't think that's who he was protecting. Yeah. I don't know if that's a bad translation, or if I miss something. I'm like, also, if your entire plot is based on having a shapeshifter, it would be helpful if that person didn't take the opportunity to constantly shift back into their regular form and go, yes, it was me. And, <laughs> but this person does that all the time. And I'm like, wait a minute. The minute you do that, everybody should know what's up, but there's still another hour of movie to go. And this person literally does it like four or five times, where it just changes back into their normal selves. And it's like, you guys are supposed to be like the best detectives in China, and you haven't figured out that the shapeshifter might be the reason why these murders are being killed by this guy who nobody thinks did it? Yeah. So it it is bonkers. It is ridiculous. But it is a lot of fun. It is done with a lot of style. The production values on this are beautiful. It does go a little heavy on the CGI. There are some shots that look more CGI than others. But when I saw this, I thought, this must have been a blockbuster. Because this does not feel like the standard CGI. This was no Wolf Warrior. Yeah. Where, you know, <laughs> this, you had this CGI This is the budget shot. for Wolf Warrior went. Yeah. So like, all, the, all the good CG folks were busy that day. I mean, so. this felt like a, a Hollywood blockbuster but, you know, done with a Chinese flair, and obviously there had to be some kind of familiarity with the story. It makes a lot more sense, not only that it's a sequel that we weren't aware was a sequel, but that it actually is based on a very well-known property. Uh, I don't even know if property is the right term, a folk legend or a classic novel that everybody probably knows, I mean, except us in the West. If, if you're fine walking into you know two thirds of the way through through uh, the two towers, which is basically what you're doing this here, is- then you're fine. But I, you know, I think really, uh, if you if you love this this kind of material, go find the four and then buy this and then wait for the the third volume, which will probably not be marked as like, hey, it's the third volume. I, this comes down to it being a problem with the distribution house. Yes, uh, and I think that it's actually. I think they bought Pretty, this property and didn't know what it was, or or they they bought it. Yeah, I, I think somebody like Wellgo would have done a much better job. They, you know, they've done an excellent. Like, job there's a lot packaging. of nice special features on this disc too. I mean, somebody put some money into this particular but, uh, disc. Or, you know, would it? But didn't put the effort. All to they had use to do the was say part two, sequel, sequel to anything, before, anything. To, you know, even a, yeah, the, the, it was poorly marketed. There's no doubt about it. 
but you know, the best thing you can say about it is usually the best thing you can say about a movie is they want to make it makes you want to watch a sequel. Here, you want to see the original. Yeah. But if you want to watch it, have fun. But just know you're not going crazy. It really is that incomprehensible uh, without context. A film which was weirdly familiar to me in a lot of ways. Oh, of course, was oh. D Train. Oh, the D Train, which was D-train. which is. Yeah, Jack Black is an interesting point in his career where I think he's realized like, a few years ago people really were getting a bit burned out on his more conventional comedies. Gulliver's Travel tanked. I think he's since then been trying to find something a little bit edgier. And yes. what, he, what he's basically done here is take what would have been kind of a a Dan Aykroyd vehicle in about 1988. Dan Aykroyd would have never gone to where this would No, goes. well, that's the thing. And then kind of done kind of a, a modernization of that because there's that classic form of, of, of comedy from the mid to late 80s where you have a very straight-laced kind of mm-hmm. very average character. Um, and then, you know, this somebody unconventional is dropped into their lives. Uh-huh. You know, it's the kind of the, the what about Bob syndrome. Uh, yeah, but this feels like it starts off like that kind of pro- kind of story and then goes to a very, very different and unusual uh-huh. place fairly quickly. Surprisingly the, the, quickly. Yeah, surprisingly. In fact, that is the exact <laughs> moment seems when to take is a, is a couple most of, of the audience will check out. Yeah, a lot of people are going to go, what? Um, so Jack Black plays Dan Landsman, who is this kind of very bumptious guy who who seemingly has got just lucky enough in his life that he and knows that he got luckier in his life than he deserved. He got a stable enough job. He's got a boss that's dumb enough that he can manipulate him, um, and he's got a wife who is clearly, although not. You know, a supermodel, not January Jones kind of ridiculous, like, why are you married to him? But, you know, clearly, like, he's like, whoa, out of my league. Uh, and as a man who married out of his league, you know, I'm quite happy to say, yeah, he's he's in that. And he's kind of, like, clearly trying to protect that little bit of his bubble of his life. He's trying to organize his high school reunion. Nobody wants to come, mainly because most people, whenever he calls them, they're like, yeah, no, I didn't like you when you in, when we were in high school together. Why would I want to come and spend night? So his plan is to convince the most popular guy in school, uh, Oliver Lawless, who is now an actor doing uh, banana boat suntan lotion commercials in California, uh, played by James Marsden, to to come back and be basically the reason why everybody would want to come because like every who would want to hang out with Oliver Lawless? Ah, oh, he's the popular guy. So he does this, goes through this elaborate ruse of convincing his boss, played by Jeffrey, Jeffrey Tambor, Tambor, who, you know, again... Fantastically done can't, by Jeffrey Tambor. Can't, can't do wrong. To fly to California to pretend to have a business meeting. And this is the point where it really feels like one of those kind of quirky, yes, screwball, yes. like, everything's got so complicated that at some point that it all must fall apart. And, convin- you know, make, they meet with Oliver who they pretend is actually a potential client, because that's the simplest way for any of this yes. to, to work. Um, and 
Oliver and Dan go out for drinks. And then this film goes to a very peculiar place that a lot of people would not have expected. And I'm pretty damn positive Dan Aykroyd would not have taken this in 1986. No, no, no. No, 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 he certainly would not. There is, looking at this film, you're right, it feels familiar. There is, looking at this film, it's very easy to see how one could extract a crowd-pleasing film in the sort of John Hughes, Judd Apatow vein, sort of a very brotastic comedy you know, two guys who should not be friends, but, you know, they learn together. They learn about one another. At the end, everybody learns a valuable lesson. They learn to love themselves and appreciate one another, etc., etc., etc. This movie kind of tries to do that, but it doesn't pull it off. Uh, not Namely because an event that happens rather early in the film... Uh, taints everything that happens after that. <laughs> Taint is a rather there, unfortunate there, use of term. There, there's no pun intended. But again, <laughs> it, it, it's this outrageous thing that you could do in one of two ways. You could either make it this one-off, gross-out joke, or it actually informs the narrative. And it does that. And I give them credit for that, that it goes to uncomfortable places it could be just this one-off event, but you realize that there is a lot of... God, this is a very hard movie to talk about without giving too much away. Because the movie that you're going to see the trailer for is not the movie you're going to see. No. This is actually a movie that after I watched it, I was curious what the trailer looked like. And the trailer looks a lot closer to what I would think the... Uh, John Hughes Apatow version would be and I realize why they had to market it that way this film I give it credit for taking some chances with a very familiar type story to having some very good actors in this do a very good job but it's not it is far more of a drama than it is a comedy you're going to be pitched this uh, you know dude comedy it's not that it is something much darker much more unpleasant, and the characters are, at times, pathetic and repellent. And again, this seems to be a theme with some of the films I watched this week, where, like, in the last, in the home stretch, they have this false redemptive ending that just does not convince me at all. And not giving... The event, the pivotal event away, which I, there are going to be some people who at that point are, are just going to fall off from this. Film. Yeah. You know, they're just going to go, nope, don't like where this is going. Not, some of them will, will yeah. uh, let's put it this way. Uh, a lot of buddy comedies, there's always the joke about kind of an inherent subtext of homoeroticism uh, in there. This isn't always so much of a subtext, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel. I still don't feel I'm giving away what happens there, but the, like this idea of like you know what you know the what the unpopular guy, you know, were, were, you know what were his feelings towards the popular guy in school? You know, is it you know yeah. is it just adoration or is it more of a crush? That those issues are kind of dealt with. Yeah, uh, a little much more much more explicitly than you than you would expect in a lot of uh, a lot of the films. Um, but this just is really I think it doesn't quite know where to pitch itself like I said yeah it's it, it's you know, not prepared to be dark enough of a comedy 
it wants to play with that kind of Apatow-esque yeah. kind of like, oh, we can all be disgusting, but we're all, we're all really lovely at the end of the but day. But yeah, it doesn't have any of that sentimentality. No. There's there's a moment that felt like something out of a National Lampoon movie from the 80s. Again, not a big spoiler. One, a, actually, one of the subplots I actually kind of found funny uh, was uh, Jack Black's son. He has a 14-year-old boy in the movie, and he's trying to ask his father from some ad- for some advice about sex. But what this kid's asking for is completely... I don't want to say it's unrealistic that it couldn't happen to a 14-year-old, but I don't know any 14-year-old on the planet that would have ever gone up to their parents and asked for advice on this topic. Particularly, he clearly has a very... yeah, unresp- unresponsive yeah. relationship with his father. Yeah. His father consistently goes, you know, that's the whole thing of like, don't talk about anything, don't try right. and rock the boat. You know, he, I, I didn't feel but that it, was yeah, a realistic in another fun In another movie, that would have been hilarious. In this movie, it just feels weird and kind of gross because it does not seem to come from the same planet that the rest of the movie's in. It seems tonally inconsistent. It does lead to an amusing scene where Oliver Lawless... Uh, the James Marsden character goes, oh, you had a question about that? Let me tell you how to do that. Yeah. And you're like, it's this sort of like, oh my God, I can't believe that kind of... It's not that unbelievable. But still, it's funny because it's incongruous. However, it does not feel like it fits in this movie. It's it's not a horrible gag, but it belongs in a movie that is a lot goofier and a lot more uh, risque and just, uh, dare I say it, just more fun. Yeah, this movie's not trying to be fun. I think it's trying to be what it is, but what it is may not appeal to it, everyone. It kind of falls between Apatow and the Ferelli brothers. Yeah, description. It doesn't have the the Ferelli brothers. There's no willingness yeah. to to go for the extremity. It's like the Ferelli and Todd Salon, some combination there. There's some icky, uh, kind of dark, unpleasant uh, character areas. And I, th- and I think they knew what they were going for because yeah. uh, you know Mike White turns up. Yes. he is the master of that kind sure. of like. It is a lot of cringe comedy. comedy. Correct. He's so good at that. And I think in the instant you put him in there, you kind of like, oh, you're going to go for the cringe comedy, and then they don't quite because they want to have some well because level they, of they, emotional honesty, but then yeah. the cringe comedy undercuts that. So it, it never quite. It, there's a lot of stools that it falls in between. Yes, and it's a shame. I think there's, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of Jack Black involved. trying to yeah. do something. Although at the end he kind of falls back into the. There is a montage at the end. Yes, um, that is just like, oh my god, this this actually looks like outtakes from. Uh, That's the John Hughes ending right yeah. there, and yeah. it doesn't deserve that. No, it doesn't need that. It needs something, yeah. but that's but not the ending that, I, Marston, that's required. Marston is great in this. He's great in this. this is, you know, there's, there's a few moments where you go, where you really feel that he is the best best plotted out character in here. Yeah. And that he's, that he's a man who, you know, I, I do feel sorry for him because I think he was a guy who was on a really great trajectory right up until the point that uh, somebody convinced him to go to go do Superman Returns, and I think that kind of kiboshed his career. Yeah. And I think this is the kind of thing that this isn't the performance well, that's going to put comedy. him. Yeah, this isn't the performance that's going to put him back on the ma- no. on the map. But it's the performance I think that will lead to people going, "Oh yeah, he's he's good. We yeah. should start casting." Now, he him has stuff. always been reliable, and so- in fact, oddly enough, that you mentioned the Superman movie, I thought he was the best part of it. Well, that's not hard. 
you know, it wasn't hard, but I'm like, oh, you know, I like when James Marsden shows up and does a good job. He does a good job in here. Everybody does. I just think that this film is inconsistent. Worth checking out, but just, you know, just know that you're getting into something a little bit different that's willing to color outside of the lines. I give the movie a lot of credit for that, but uh, your mileage may vary. Well, moving on to a uh, another film that uh, kind of uh, much more explicitly t- touches on um, homoeroticism. Uh, okay, this this is a an inherently sad mm. film because this is Boulevard, which was Robin Williams' final performance, uh, released posthumously. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is. This is one of those moments where you just you just go. This was a, an actor who still still could astonish, still yeah. could pull something you'd never seen out. This is and this isn't Robin Williams, the kind of witty comedian or the the, the clever extemporizer. This is the Robin Williams who would go. You know what? I'm going to go off and do one hour photo. Right. I'm going to go be the, the the villain in the remake of Insomnia and yeah. have that that performance where you feel this guy crushing Al Pacino's heart just yeah. by talking to him. That those were the, the exact two movies I thought of. And when I saw this. This is not uh, that he's playing anything remotely like, like this, that. but it's that level of kind of calm intensity, and you can feel. The intellect and the emotions work. There's you an internal just, turmoil. Oh, it's just, there, there's the external Robin Williams that everybody knows and loves, and then there's that Robin Williams that bottles it all in. It can sometimes still be showy. Yeah. Uh, if you look at things like The Fisher King or Goodwill Hunting, or to a lesser extent, uh, the Oliver Sacks uh, film. Uh, was it Awakenings? I can't yes. remember. It's been so long now. Uh, where he usually the joke was that if Robin Williams had a beard, this was the dramatic role. But in latter in the later years, latter part of his career, I think you know that's obviously just ridiculous. Uh, here he is, clean shaven. For those of you who need a visual, uh, but suffice it to say that there is that internal Robin Williams where you sense the turmoil, you see it wanting to come out. And this is a character who is this is not a spoiler. This is a character who is deeply closeted very tamped down his entire life and personality have been compartmentalized and needless to say that will have a psychic toll on any person in this uh, Robin Williams plays Nolan Mack who is a uh, he's a bank teller he's worked yeah. at the same bank for 26 years again it's, it's kind of like Jack Black's character he's a guy who yeah. doesn't want to disturb anything because right. he, he has a, a life that he has he has a life he was supposed to have. But, yeah, and that, he's that everyone's told him he needs. Yeah. And he, you know, his wife, Joy, played by Kathy Baker, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they, they, they're married. They clearly do love each other. Yes, that was Very a nice clearly. touch. They genuinely have affection for one another. The, it opens up with him in, in a guest bedroom. Yeah. When he a, sleeps in the spare bedroom, but it's, it's bedroom. not that he's been kicked out. Yeah. It's just like he sleeps in the guest bedroom. She has the... And he comes in, and he, you know, yeah. gives her a morning coffee and gives her a kiss and goes yeah. to work. And there's a moment where you realize... It's a very clever, subtle moment that that is makes this very timely that he's working in the bank and he's signing off yes. on the mortgage agreement 
for a same-sex couple. Right. And there's this look in his eyes of yeah. just, you just see something. He's genuinely happy for them. Yeah. And you're kind of like, he seems far too happy. Yes. But he goes out driving, you know, he's driving at down night. Down the boulevard. Down, down, a, uh, down a boulevard. And you're kind of going, why is he there? What is it that he is looking for? Because it's clearly not just like he's gone out and gone in this direction by accident or this is... And he slows down and this is clearly... This is the red light district. Yes. And he he hits this, this guy called Leo uh, played by Roberto Aguirre who, you know, yells at him and, and he says, well, can I give you a lift somewhere? And you're going, this guy's clearly... He's clearly a male prostitute. Absolutely. And no I mean, there's to, nothing but prostitutes, yeah, male no and female on the block. It's clearly, it's not, you, you don't think, this guy can be that, can't be that dumb that he, no, he doesn't realize. I got the impression that he drives up that boulevard a lot, lot. for years, and he's never stopped. And, he, and it literally takes him bumping into someone to make him roll the window down. And he said, uh, and, the, and he goes, you know, do you want to lift? And he goes, yes. And he gets in. And that's the moment where suddenly this character who has been closeted since the age of 12. Yes. That's the moment he admits to himself. He actually and does tell that story. you can see that, that moment. And, and if there were an Oscar moment, I don't think this is the kind of movie they would ever nominate him for an Oscar because it's not showy enough. But that's the Oscar highlight moment that when he talks about being 12 years old. And it's a very quiet scene. It's not done with histrionics. And it is so... I mean, there's no point in denying that when you have a, a, a film that's posthumously released, there is a tendency to give it a little more gravitas, to give it a little more weight than it deserves. I want to be clear about this movie. Even though I think Robin Williams is wonderful in it, it doesn't feel horribly substantial. It feels to me like a somewhere in the vein of a TV of the week kind of movie. Cinematically, it's nothing terribly impressive. The only reason to really watch this movie is, of course, the late Robin Williams, and that will give it a lot more mileage than it deserves. But he is so good in this, even though I don't think it's a great movie, it's just unfair because you think, my goodness, you know, the man had so much more to give, but I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to invest too much in the movie because he died. We should view it just as a movie in its own right. And on that level, I don't think it's terribly successful because it just feels very flat. It feels, it doesn't, it doesn't want to be a melodrama. It wants to be very observational. But it just feels like a, a it feels like a quiet, observational film that somehow managed to pull in a huge heavy hitter like Robin Williams to do this small little movie. I mean, maybe that's why he did so many horrible movies so that he could do one like this. Yeah, maybe and, that's and, why. He and does closing one. years of his career, he really did move towards this kind of film. I mean, this yeah. it makes a lot of sense that he do this mm. after something like World's Greatest Dad. Yeah. I think, you know, in the basic. Plot. The problem is that the plot is exactly what you would expect it yes. was going to be. The, There's no the, surprises you know, the, in this movie. You know, Leo's pimp turns up and Nolan doesn't know how to deal with him and ends up being like, is he going to get blackmailed? And you know, as, as Leo kind of gets yeah. more and more into his life, it's harder and harder for him to hide what it is that's happening. Yeah. 
and he loses the willingness to hide it. And the you know, Williams is great. Williams is, yeah. is is just stellar in this. This is a wonderful, wonderful performance, and I think it goes up with the best of his work right? as a, as a as a straight dramatic actor. Absolutely. Um, but it's helped greatly by two other performances. Um, you know, uh, Robert Aguirre, Roberto Aguirre is, is okay in this, but you yeah. could have put a any one of a. a, a He's a generically actors. attractive young man who's troubled. Yeah. Um, Bob Odenkirk. Yes. As um, as his best friend from college who is the guy who has never had a stable relationship no. in his life because he keeps sleeping with uh, with his postgrads. He, he is yes he is the <laughs> classic professor who sleeps with his students and to me that was such a telling thing in that those two guys were best friends yeah and there is again tying going back to d-train which only superficially touches on some of the same issues but again you have these people stuck in this small town who are living the lives that everybody has told them they're supposed to be living. They have the job, they have the kid, they have the house in the suburbs and all that. Odenkirk has obviously not gone that path, but the Robin Williams character has. And you wonder what the... they At one point, they talk about, remember when we were going to go to New York and you were going to be a great writer and you were going to be like the master of Wall Street or whatever? What happened to us? And you wonder... Not that I think anything happened between those characters, but you wonder how, where that first inkling of a relationship, why are those two guys friends? Yeah. And there's you something the very that, poignant about that, that he probably had a crush on him all those years, and he never did anything about it. Yeah. Uh, but the the other performance, which I you know I will actually say, I think is up there with Williams, is Kathy Baker as his wife. There is one scene, and we will not go into in the details yeah. of this, because it is, it is one of the most pivotal scenes in the in the film where she delivers one line uh-huh and it is crushing yeah it is yeah I, I, and it's one of the best deliveries of a line i have seen this year it is one of the best simple lines yeah. i've seen in a, in forever and that she just kills it yes. with that it, and she you know, I, you know i think that's the the thing i mean like Yes, come for Robin Williams, but stay for Kathy Baker, stay for Bob Odenkirk. Yes. I mean, who knew Bob? Who who knew the Mister Show guy was oh, going yeah. to say to this I, but, guy? But who knew Robin Williams twenty, thirty years ago? Who knew Mork? Yeah, would be playing this. Well, I, I, I will say that I, I was I, I was the one person who was consistently gone. God damn it! Go back and rewatch Moscow on the Hudson. No, no, uh, Moscow <laughs> on the Hudson is great. But my point is, it, it took him that many. Because there was, you're right, is that there was a tendency to kind of mix up the serious dramatic roles with the big crazy over the top. Sometimes you have something like Fisher King where he kind of merges the two, where he's still funny but still very uh, uh, dramatic. But now in the later years, he, he did approach, I think, a much quieter delivery. I think there was a greater confidence as a performer, you know. Maybe the fact that he wasn't on cocaine also helped. I don't know. He, he always talked about those early years about being pretty big. Uh, but yeah, th- there's an actor who was confident of his craft, who could deliver a line without having to put too much spin on it. And, and you're right about Kathy Baker in this, because I, I absolutely agree with you. Earlier, I kind of jokingly called this a, a lifetime movie of the week kind of thing, because 
visually it feels like that. It feels kind of flat, very bland, suburb. It's shot in Tennessee, but they never tell you where it is. It just feels like generic any town USA. Uh, but the difference between that and, say, a Hallmark or Lifetime movie is that it does not go for the histrionics. It doesn't go for the melodrama. It could, but it plays it at a lot more real level. And that performance by Kathy Baker, I think you nailed it on the head. She delivers it at a very real line, uh, a very real delivery. And it just tells us that these two people have both been living a lie all these years. And they've secretly always known about it. And it's it's a crushing moment. Uh, yeah. Yeah, moving on to a yeah. film that does not have... Any crushing moments? No, any crushing moments, Nate. And uh, we've had a couple of, of films that have felt a little bit derivative. Oh. But, oh my God, seven minutes. Maybe. Ye- oh, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, it, wow. It felt like it's a throwback from the late 90s. Yeah, this really this is... post-Tarantino. Yeah, that, that endless swathe of extremely mediocre heist movies with a flashback structure. Yes. Where they're kind of laying out characters through through, through interlocking stories. Yes, it's like oh, here's the you know, here's the a char- freeze frame with a title to tell you who this character is. And this character did did something weird and idiosyncratic that doesn't fit with what they've done before. Here's a flashback. Oh my! Here's God. a drug dealer who knows that he's a drug dealer in a movie and is going to tell you about the necessity of fairy tales. Like that's a very self conscious thing for a drug dealer to be talking about during a deal, but it's a movie, so you go with it. Uh, I was a little, a tiny bit disappointed in this movie only because I thought it was a heist movie. And I'm a sucker for a good heist movie. But this is not a heist movie, contrary to what the box might make you think. The heist does happen. In fact, the movie starts right off with it. In fact, it's got about seven minutes of heist. It's the other 83 minutes that you've got to worry about. It does what it says on the tin. But the thing about the seven-minute heist sequence is that it's really not important. There's nothing phenomenal about this heist. I thought, oh, it's a heist. It's got to require crackerjack timing. There's some ingenious way to do this. It all has to happen. And se- no, it's an in-and-out job. What I found, and then, of course, things go wrong, and every time we cut back to the heist, we see a little bit more of it, and then we meet another character or have a new situation which motivates yet another flashback, and yet there are flash-forwards within the flashbacks. It's a... It's not a complicated structure. It just thinks it is. But the one thing I really liked about this movie that set it apart for me was the fact that this is not some urban crime thriller. Uh, It's not really a heist movie. It's more of a small-town noir uh, that takes place in some depressed rural area where the factories are closing down. And it also... I don't recall seeing this in a movie in a long time. The idea of how do you commit a brazen daylight robbery in a tiny town where everybody knows you. Yes. Everybody in this town knows... Most times you see these like... And in fact, the, you're, ro- you're robbing your uncle. So, yeah, I didn't so, want to give that away, but yeah. But no, exactly. but that's, 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 one of the, that's one of the great surprises on. in the movie. That's where it first clicked to me. I'm like, oh, you're robbing this guy. Now I'm going to get a flashback explaining why you're robbing this guy. Uh it's not some urban sprawl crime thriller where somehow, like, everybody in this city of millions of people are somehow connected for this one story. It's like, no, these guys went to high school. That's my uncle. That's my dad's best friend. You know, that cop I, is the guy I went to school with. Everybody in this town knows one another. And to me, that adds 
the nicest little touch to this movie, which doesn't really deserve much more credit. You know, it's a good enough functional little film, but it is a nice little wrinkle to see that set in small town America. Well, what disappointed me with this was that while I was, I put the disc into uh, into the player and I was watching the trailers, and uh, one of the films that was on the trailers was a movie called Bad Turn Worse. Um, which uh, originally called "We Got to Get Out of This Place," which is a far better title. I wish they kept that. But you know, you're you're watching this, you're watching the trailer, and I'm like, oh god, I love Bad Turn Worse. That is, which is very similar. It's you know, bunch of people you know trying to get the money together to get out of this place. They fall into crime by accident. You know, one of them is really the bad kid. You know, the others are just like, you know, I just got to do this. But it, but it does it so much better. And I, I was really, I kept thinking of, if they hadn't reminded me of Bad Turn Worse by having the trailer, then I wouldn't have had that playing in my head all the way through. And I, it's just a matter of a comparison. But this really, I, you know, there's nothing stand out here apart from uh, the one thing I really liked about this uh, is Zane Holtz. Um who plays the the guy who's got out of prison, and he's oh, he's, the, yeah. he's the the guy who is clearly the he's the, he's the one who is never going to not fuck up. Oh yeah, he That's... is the guy who is just on the hair trigger all the while, um, and really instigates everything that happens because he's an idiot. Cause because he's the guy he who doesn't know how not to get in idiot. trouble. Uh, I like Saint Holtz as an actor. I also actually personally like Saint Holtz. I've met him a few times, and I think he's, he's just he's a really he's a a guy who is on the cusp of doing something really special. Somebody's going to give him exactly the right role. He's uh, He actually plays the part of um, Richie Gecko in the TV series version of From Dust Till Dawn. Oh, okay. And, you know, he's, he has this heaviness about him, yeah. but it's very different here where it's kind of like he's just like twitchy and febrile. In, in that, he's kind of just spacey and strange. Yeah. And I really like St. Holt's snack too. And I think he's, you know, this is another one of these parts where I'm looking at and going, God, I really wish somebody would give him something much more substantial to play with than what is at the end of the day, you know, yes, the location works in its favor. But again, I, I, I've seen a film that very recently, which does so many of the same things and does them so much better. And I was sat there thinking, God, I really wish I was watching Bad Term Worse. Well, I mean, the- which I know, uh, yeah. seriously, folks, like, I, you know, this isn't bad. But if you put those two films side by side and you're wondering what to watch right. this evening, I'd watch right. Bad Turn Worse. But it's not the same as saying that it's a bad film. It's, it's not, not a bad, bad film. It's okay. But there are other films that do this that do it better. It's good for what it is. Again, I think there's some good performances. I do like the small town setting. Uh, I thought the soundtrack, oddly enough, worked well. You know, it just didn't feel like every song I've ever heard. It was a nice little film. Watch it once if you can get it. Rent it cheap. Uh, but yeah. There's plenty of other fish out there that uh, are much better than seven minutes. Um, in very severe contrast. Did I just compare uh, this movie to a fish? I think I did. I think you did. I don't know why I did. This is a. It, I wasn't it's a, thinking it's about a sprat fish. too much, much finer halibut. Maybe I'm hungry. Uh, I mean, the, one of the things issues we have with that is that it's so generic. There's so many other films that are like it. I honestly haven't seen anything like felt. In a very long time. Yes. Felt was I first saw it South by, uh, at Fantastic Fest last year. This is uh, this is without a shadow of a doubt my pick of the week. Okay. Uh, I have seen this multiple times. Every single time, I am more entranced by it. This isn't a film you will like. 
It is let the me, most me, original film in this pile. Yeah, let, let, let's be explicit. You will, this is not a film you will like because it is not a film you are supposed to like. It is a film you are supposed to absorb and understand. It's, I mean, it uh, raises the old question. Is art there to entertain? Yes. Is that its only function? Will this make you happy? Will you leave the theater with a smile on your face? No. no. This is probably next. I did once many years ago take a girl on a date to Boys Don't Cry. That was a horrible date film, by the way. <laughs> Terrible. I felt so awkward. She seemed cool with it, but I just felt weird. Yeah. Uh, this movie, that's even like times 30. My experience 20 years ago times 30 is how uncomfortable this would be to go see a date with. This is... Uh, it, it's. Nominally directed by Jason Banker, who mm-hmm. um, directed uh, Toad Road, uh, but really it's a, a, the result of an extremely long collaboration between Banker and um, Amy Everson. Yes, the, uh, who is the main performer? Main in this. performer. She, Amy Everson, is is a, actually a, a, a conceptual artist mm-hmm. in real life, um, and. The film is basically a quasi-fictionalized version of her. It opens and something has happened. It is right. never it's explicitly never said. You are never told what it is, but it is clearly some kind of deep sexual trauma has happened to her. The, and she is hiding behind her work. Mm-hmm. Um, she has extremely complicated relationships with men. She is very aggressive towards men. She does not trust them around her friends. She does not want to be around them herself. She is... Nothing about her life is comfortable. No. She is always on edge. And you... You know, I mean, it, it, it's pretty... It's never explicitly stated, but, you know, you're never sure whether she was raped once, whether there's a long history of sexual abuse... Something has happened. It is clearly sexual, uh, sexual yes, violence. Yes, absolutely. So if you do, if you can't handle a film about uh, about sexual violence, then it's it's very clear that that's that this is not going to be the film for you. It is a movie about. Well, this is not what it's about, but it features a woman whose hobby is making felt penises. Yes. Okay. So and then showing a potential boyfriend how she knits them because. When you craft with felt, you have to prick them with needles to form the shape. And then takes our sweet time inserting that needle right down the length of that felt penis. While this man is standing there watching this. Now, it is clear based on her artwork, which, by the way, the actress made herself. Yeah. You know, this is not some art-directed thing. I mean, this is a performer who has actually written this, who has actually constructed her own wardrobe, her own props... And, you know, again, I don't know how quasi-fictional this is, but my goodness, uh, I can only imagine where it's coming from. This is... It's uncomfortable. This is one of the most emotionally honest films yes. you will ever see. It's uh, very heavily improvised and workshopped over uh-huh. a long period of time by by uh, Banker and Everson. There are professional actors in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kentucky Rodley does up as the, the boyfriend, that she, yeah. as, the, as the potential boyfriend. Um... And what's been really interesting about this is that it's been portrayed by some people as this is a film about the birth of a kind of a female vigilante striking back yeah. against uh, against male oppression. And what's really fascinating is I've actually talked to 
Amy Everson about this. And I said, this doesn't feel like the birth of a superhero. She said, it's absolutely not. This is about somebody who mistakenly takes on the tools of her oppressors. Yes. And thinks that's going to bring her happiness and think that's going to bring her some You thought of, Buffalo Bill was creepy. Yeah. And and she becomes the villain of her own story. Yeah. And it's not in kind of any cartoonish way. This is incredibly naturalistic. Incredibly right. honest. See, it, it, Brutally uh, so. I'm not surprised somebody said, oh, it's like a super... Here's the problem. And, and here's why I think a lot of people may not like felt. I'm not going to lie. This is not a movie I enjoyed watching. It's not a movie I imagine watching repeatedly. I can't ever imagine inviting friends over and say, hey, let's watch Felt. Let's have a few beers and watch this. This will be great. It is a good movie. Uh, coming back to my question about, you know, should art be expected to entertain us? Not necessarily. Also, the fact that somebody referred to it maybe as a, as a superhero origin story, this is kind of where the mentality is at. It's like you're trying to find... This is a round, the classic round peg, and you're trying to make it fit into this square hole. Because you can't understand it outside. Well, it must be like a, an origin story, right? And then, like, the next installment, she'll be, like, fighting for justice and shit. No. This is a very... This is an artistic statement, whether you like it or not, whether it's comfortable to, or not, whether you find flaws in it or not. It is not trying to be anything other than it is. And... Even though I can't say I enjoyed watching this film, I wasn't entertained by it, I was disturbed by it, but I was also impressed by a lot of aspects of it, and I give them a lot of credit for doing something that is not cookie-cutter, that is actually taking a chance and pushing cinema into an area that we don't normally see. You you can see, I guarantee you, there's going to be another Avengers, Star Wars, Spider-Man movie coming around the corner. There'll be another... Western, there'll be another knockoff of Seven Minutes or some other kind of heist film. You're not going to see anything like Felt. It does not belong in a genre. It's nominally described as a horror film. I don't think that's accurate because it's a horror film without any scares, you know, un- unless you count maybe the last ten minutes of it. It's, it, 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 it's, you can call it's it a tense. horror film because there is a sense of creeping dread. Yeah. But that's driven by the fact that you're watching this character and you just don't want her to go down this path. You don't, you can feel yeah. how damaged she is and that people are trying to help her, mm. but she doesn't get it's, that. And it was, what's interesting, again, talking to Amy Everson about this, this is a, you know, and I, I talked to her twice, once during Fantastic Fest when we talked about it. And I said, you know, was the process of, of doing this film cathartic? And she was like, yeah, really, no, not in that way. And then I, I spoke to her a couple of months ago when this was released theatrically. And I, I raised that question again. And she went, I, you know, it's weird. I'm so far removed from that character now. A lot of it because of the process of doing this film and talking about this film. And that I... That I I almost don't recognize myself now because I'm so used to being her. But I'm so this is a, this is a deeply personal creation yeah. here, and I, I you know I think this is it's a guileless and artless performance. You never feel like this is a trained actor. No, you, you know it's very handheld, which I normally don't like, but they actually do a good job of keeping it, you know, unobtrusive. Again, there are some professional actors in here. You have a best friend character early on who then just who you know. I don't want to say she disappears. There's a reason for her no longer hanging out through her boorish boyfriend. And then she, early on, uh, uh, the character Anna, meets uh, an, another 
well, I don't think it's a spoiler. She basically goes on a porn shoot. Yes. And she meets this interesting woman there. And they kind of have this little friendship. And they go out partying. She meets a young man. He seems nice. He seems genuinely non-threatening. He seems responsive to her. He, he seems sensitive, a little confused, but willing to take the time to listen to her. And you have this other friend who, later on in the plot, kind of raises some doubts in her mind. And I, that's one of the few weaknesses in the film. You had those two characters who feel very functional. Yeah. And it feels like, well, we had this actor this week, and we had this actor the following week. We couldn't really interweave them throughout the narrative. So as soon as one goes, we replace her with another. That's that's the peril of, of super low-budget filmmaking. Yeah. This is, you know, this was... I, I, you know, I, I, the concept that this even had a budget, I think uh, this yeah. is the point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think they, you know, they... They did this film because they really wanted to. Yeah. Um, and I, But I think it's... And I don't think either of them is going to do anything like this again because I think this is a truly unique moment in the creative career of a, co- of, of a couple yeah. of people who've got something really interesting to say. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to look back and Amy Everson, I think people are going to talk more about her as an artist than a performer. Yeah. Uh, Banker, I think people are definitely going to start looking at him. I, I know he's got a few projects lined up, including... Um, you know, Something which is actually going to be, as he said, yeah, for the first time I'm going to do something with a budget. I don't know how yeah. I'm going to handle that. Yeah, they will uh, never do this. They will never make a movie like this because again. you can't do this twice. You can't. You do can't. Something like this twice. I mean, if this someone is- goes, "Oh, you did Chronicle. It's a superhero movie. You could probably direct a big budget superhero movie." What do you say to a guy who directed Felt? Well, you're a good director. What else are you going to do next? Because you're not going to. There's no genre for this. And again, I like a lot of genre films. I like a lot of mainstream, uh, popular cinema. It's nice that every once in a while, you don't have to like them, you don't have to love them, you might even hate them. But there's something to be said about a film like this actually sitting here in the living room with us on a piece of plastic in a box. Somebody made that movie. It got out into the world. And it shouldn't, but it did. And and that's, you know, I think that's a, a good thing to say. Um, we need more little films like that. Hopefully they'll be good. Absolutely. Well, and you know, we've we've reached that point in the show. We have reached the moment in the show that we have to re- that you know, it is the giveaway time. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it, we're, we're there. We you know this is uh, and this week uh, it's one. It's we can another. Finally, redeem ourselves. Yeah. Hey, oh, cheap hey I'll, hand, I'll handle the segues. You're much better at it than I am. Hey, uh, this is another film I saw at Fantastic Fest last year. Uh, this is uh, Redeemer. Uh, this is uh, Spanish, but pretty much everybody involved with it is Chilean. Chilean. Yeah. Uh, Ernesto Diaz Espinosa, uh, the mighty Marco Zorro, who is one of my favorite martial arts guys at the moment. Uh, if you haven't seen any of his films, but you you saw him, you probably saw him as the uh, the uh, cloned hitman in uh, Machete Kills. If you saw Machete Kills, which not many people did. Um, Marco Zorro just he is such a throwback to classic action actors. He is the nicest guy on the planet. He but he's like a he's he, he is the closest thing you'll see to a living superhero. I've seen this do, this guy do a, a a spinning back heel kick and clear the top of a six foot two man's head. Like you just sit, sit there going, this guy's ridiculous. Here he plays the classic tortured hitman who makes a mistake and is 
paying for it every day and wakes up first thing in the morning and plays Russian roulette with himself because he's that guy. And this is, there's nothing... You know, we, we talked about, you know, seven minutes doesn't yeah. redefine any genres. This is absolutely like, yeah, this is the classic tortured guy turns up in a small town. You could write this script with Mad Libs. Yes. And you could just insert things and it would be fine. You have seen this movie a billion times. You just maybe haven't seen this particular guy doing his thing. And he does it very well. Yeah. I mean, I'm not familiar with him. I know the name. Uh, definitely, you see the work on screen. He obviously has... I'm not going to say this guy's a great actor because this doesn't give him anything really to act with. He just has to look pensive or angry or occasionally sad and he does that and then kick the hell out of seven people and then in the same fight sequence you know this is, this is a film where you 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 know Zoror is going to give you the fight the fight sequences you want yeah, yeah there is no moment to dispute yeah. the eight guys are going to just grab whatever props are lying around the set and then be courteous enough to attack him one at a time while he takes them out it's like oh an ore oh i have a bottle let me go after you oh wait i have a brick i'll attack you and he'll take them out one at a time now there are about three fight scenes in this movie where he's actually fighting with someone of caliber and it actually is really good those three fight scenes there's a lot more fight scenes in this movie but they're largely forgettable but the three main fights uh the first one is with an absolute nobody as far narratively i don't know if the man's a great you know martial artist but he's just a henchman. But suddenly, you have a really good fight. And it's more of a wrestle. It's rolling in the ground. It's gritty, dirty. Two guys looking like they're evenly matched. The nice thing is that each of those three big bosses, not even bosses, but the three big fights are all very unique and feel like they're done in different styles. And I appreciated that because there was a lot of repetition in this movie. And there, the, the, the fight sequences are broken up by... One of the most fun performances. Of the, uh, oh goodness! The- Noah, Noah Segan as um, this. Uh, he's this the white-clad gringo that was yeah. in, and he, in and he's that the was only- in the original uh, El Mariachi, except yeah. only more ridiculous. Yeah, he turns up and he's he's desperately trying to practice his Spanish on FB because he wants to become a drug lord, and therefore yeah. you have to speak Spanish. And Chile and Chile just doesn't have a good enough. He feels that the country of Chile deserves a good drug lord. Yeah, they're he, poorly underserved in that regard. And he, he's hilarious in this. And between him and Zorro yeah. and the fact you've got great he, fight sequences, yeah. this is this is a this is. A pizza and beer movie. He's very good in this. You're right, he's funny, but it takes all the tension out of the movie because you have to realize, and it's easy to forget sometimes, that there's two villains in this movie. And the drug lord is the least in... He's absolutely inconsequential. He's not worth your time. He's very funny, but the minute he comes in, there's no tension. The tension is actually, again, this complex... It's not even complicated. It's torturous... There is another serial killer who has some similar MOs to uh, our hero uh, in the background, and you kind of wait for him to finally turn up. And he does, and it's a good, big, knockdown, dragdown fight. There is it, The name of the movie is called Redeemer. In fact, if you see the title, if you see the box, it looks like the Red Dem what is it red dead redemption yes it, it looks like a video game font and you know it's got a guy marco zoros on the cover in a quilted gray hoodie looking like the cheapest assassin's creed cosplay you'll ever see 
Uh, this is a case where you have like Indiana Jones style headgear, whereas the hoodie never goes off unless it's narratively required. It yep. always stays on, even when he's doing spin kicks and things. Which I'd like to be, is, I, I'd like it, to be able to pull that off. You know, but like but, I said, this is this is the giveaway this week. It, it is mean, a giveaway. This is, this I don't is, want to run it down. This is a fun movie. This is absolutely. You know, you you will sit there and you'll go. Yeah, well, pizza, beer, pizza, what are we beer. Gonna do? What are we gonna do? Let's put on Redeemer, and you know anything that gets uh, Marcos a roar into more people's homes. Uh, I I am all in favor of. Um, so to win a copy of Redeemer on Blu-ray, which really seriously you do want to do, is a great fun movie, particularly after kind of some of the heavy stuff we've done this week. Whoa. Yeah, this is a, a good palate cleanser. Yes. Um, exactly. Follow us on Twitter at one of us net. Um, Use the hashtag uh, Redeemer Giveaway and answer this one question. If you had to be kicked in the head by any one action star, who would it be? That's it. That's all we want to know. Be- you know. And it has to be an action star. You can't just go Shirley Temple because I'm not giving you that one. Uh, she can't reach that high. But yeah. Who, which Good Marshall, kick in the shins, if you, if you had to be kicked in the head by one uh, by one action star, living, dead, whatever, who would it be? So just send us that answer. Use the hashtag uh, Redeemer Giveaway and follow us uh, on Twitter at one of us net. Well, that's it. Right. We've come to the end of the stack. We've waded through. Um, uh, it has been a genuine pleasure yeah, uh, breaking you into the uh, the uh, digital noise family. Pardon me, you've missed. <laughs> I, I guess I'm one of us now. You are indeed one, one of, of us, us, and that, that means there's only uh, one thing to say, which is, as Brian uh, puts it, um, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. And uh, bye. Have a good night. <laughs> <laughs>